Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil series. Before Gandhi, before Dr. King, before Madiba, there was Jesus of Nazareth. Over two millennia ago, he said, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. Those who live by the sword will what? Die by the sword. So the irony of calling a practice based on the life and teachings of Jesus fighting anything is not lost on me. But calling Jesus a pacifist is at best misleading. He was a warrior, as all of the Old Testament prophecies predicted he would be. But the way that he defeated the enemy, which in Jesus' mind was not the Roman Empire, nor was it the Pharisees on the right or the Sadducees on the left, the enemy in his mind was the trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the way that he defeated this axis of evil was not with a sword or a spear and an army had his back, but was with a cross. So it comes as no surprise that he called his apprentices to follow his example. Take a look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his apprentices that he must go, notice that word, must go, I have to, to Jerusalem and suffer Many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the Torah. And then he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Peter took him aside and gave him a little talking to, right? He began to rebuke him. Never, he said, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So the gut reaction to in all of us to the idea of the cross. Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan the top of the list of things you don't want to hear from Jesus. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan, right? And yet, in this somber moment, it's actually a really brilliant insight into the way that Satan gets into our life. It is through our refusal to go to the cross. You are a stumbling block to me, Jesus says. You are a temptation. You're in the path, in the way. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his apprentices, listen, whoever wants to be my, mathetes is the word in Greek, my disciple, my apprentice, my student, my follower, must, there it is a word again, must, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. At the center of the way of Jesus is this symbol of the cross. Now, again, over the years, we've turned it into an architectural feature on a building or a sentimental song or even worse, a piece of jewelry. I love that cross earrings are back circa early 90s. I'm just just getting old enough now where I'm starting to see phase two, right? The lead singer of Laney has one now. Like, it's all new. Like, I was there when I was 11. Come on. But the cross is an ancient brutal, grotesque, ignoble symbol of death. The call of Jesus to deny ourselves and to take up our cross is essentially a call to come and die. Now, in the world that we call home, and in particular in a city like Portland, which is essentially when I describe Portland to all my friends, I say it's basically a temple to the god of hedonism. 
And in this city and in the world we call home, this just sounds crazy. The barrage of cultural messaging that we receive constantly says the exact opposite. Everything is about self-fulfillment, not self-denial. The BBC has a fantastic documentary um, that you can actually watch for free on YouTube now on the last hundred years and the rise of the advertising industry and consumerism, and they titled it Century of Self. Can't think of a more fitting title for the last hundred years in our country and the West as a whole. The closest thing we have to self-denial in our culture is health and fitness, where like you deny yourself, you know, that burrito or to sleep in that, you know, CrossFit right down here, third row, follower of Jesus and cult member, both together, <laughs> right? But even in health and, yeah, you don't deny it, even in health and fitness, it's still a mechanism for further self-fulfillment. It's to look and feel good, not that that's wrong. Or maybe careerism is another example where you sacrifice to put yourself through grad school, you work crazy hours for a decade as a lawyer or whatever it is, but still it's to arrive at your end goal of wealth or the corner office or prestige or whatever it is. Overall, most of us just can't, especially in this city, we just can't fathom a vision of the good life that doesn't involve getting what we want. Like all of you have been paying a lot of attention to the national conversation around sexuality and the way it's now been tied into politics. And every time I hear the debate rage in the internet or wherever it is, I'm struck by the assumptions that people carry into that debate. Such as one, nobody or nothing should be able to stand in the way of me getting what I want. Two, if they or it does, it is a form of oppression. And three, if I can't get what I want, I can't be happy. All three of those assumptions are at best, in Jesus' view, unless if I'm missing something, deeply flawed. I quoted Robert Roberts a few weeks ago, quote, we have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct. The self is the new God. Just as in earlier times it was thought fitting to never deny God, now it seems never right to deny oneself. Be true to yourself, follow your heart, just do it. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. This is the orthodoxy of our world. Take up your cross is heresy. Then in the church, we often mess this up as well, right? I mean, desire is the engine of our life and it's revved up to full power. And so if in the world people often idealize desire and worship at its altar, often in the church we make the opposite mistake and we demonize it. You know, every desire is guilty until proven innocent, even though our desires, good and bad, are actually where we meet God. That's the locus point of relationship to God. So what exactly does Jesus mean by deny yourself and take up your cross? Well, I would argue he means deny yourself, not deny yourself. Here's what I mean by that. You, as in the soul that God created you as, are an object of Jesus' love and delight. Through the medium of Jesus' love, you have been adopted into the family of the Father. You're a daughter, you're a son. Like any good father, he wants what is best for you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to flourish. But by yourself, well, in Jesus' paradigm, I think we mean something else. Under our rubric of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which again is an ancient rubric, the self is the center point of that. You could say it's our flesh, but it's more. It's the axis point where deceptive ideas on the one side, which we defined as the devil's 
kind of go-to, and behavior that is normalized by a sinful society on the other, what we define as the world, where they interface with our own disordered desires. We are What we are to put to death, what we are to nail onto the cross and follow Jesus' example in is not like you as a soul or as a person or your passion or your personality or your Myers-Briggs type. It's to the deceptive ideas that play in our head to the disordered desires that rumble in our heart, and to the behavior that is normalized in our sinful society. Or put another way, we are to die to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I'm getting this definition of self from the writer Paul in the New Testament. Keep your finger here in Matthew, because we're coming right back. But turn over really fast with me to Galatians chapter 2. And let me just, you know, the best way, if you're new to the Bible, the best way to think about Paul's writings in particular and the New Testament as a whole is as a number of master teachers of the way of Jesus, working out the implications of Jesus' life and his teaching, and as well as his death, burial, and resurrection. For example, Galatians, take a look at chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. We'll come back to that preposition there, with. And I no longer live. But Christ lives where? In me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, clearly Paul is still alive. This is not like his AI writing this letter or something. So what exactly does he mean by, like, I died with Jesus on the cross? Well, keep reading. Turn over to chapter 5 and take a look down at the end of chapter 5, verse 24. He goes on to explain Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. So I'm not the only one who's died with Christ. All of those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, pay close attention, the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, this is very simple. What he's saying is that the self that we are to crucify, that died with Jesus on the cross when we became an apprentice to him, is the flesh with its passions and desires, end quote. Remember, just to recap from a few weeks ago, the world that we live in has one category for desire, our authentic self, which is what you know comes to mind with be true to yourself and other mantras like that. And if all desires are good, then the mantra is follow your desires and it will lead you to happiness. Paul and the writers in the New Testament, as well as most other world religions and ancient wisdom traditions, have two categories, both of which are authentic to you and me. We all have what he would call a flesh, which we defined as our disordered desires, our primal animalistic drives that are bent towards self-gratification. And we have a spirit or a will that is bent in the opposite direction toward love. And these two aspects of desire of our heart are at war. One recent writer called it a war of loves, and it's exactly what it is. It is a war between our disordered desires of the flesh and our deeper desires of the spirit in us to love God, be loved by God, and become a medium for that love to others. One more example. Turn over to Colossians. Just a few pages to the right. Colossians chapter 3, another letter by Paul. Take a look at verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Notice how similar this is. Set your hearts, your mind, your emotions, your will, on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For, listen to this, 
you died. Sound familiar? Now, clearly, are you still alive? Yes, uh uh-huh. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Here's a few examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, and he goes on. Now, the NIV here has put to death your earthly nature, and that's a fine translation, but some translations have your old self, because notice for Paul, there is a chronological dimension to our self-denial, right? You died, past tense. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God, present tense. You will appear with him in glory, future tense. So there is an old you that you and I are to say no to, nail to the cross, crucify. There's a present you that is with Christ, and there's a future you that will one day live in glory. I wish I had time to unpack that for us today. And for Paul, the old you is the you for whom your flesh, that we just did a little work on, your disordered desires, was your God. The key line in this little passage is at the end of his list, covetousness, I'm sorry, greed, other translations have covetousness, it's actually a better translation, which is idolatry. Now listen very carefully. This is the closest thing you get in all of the New Testament to Martin Luther's idea of the idols of the heart. If you've been around the church, you hear that all the time. You don't really see that in the New Testament. It's the closest you get. Paul is saying that an idolater is not just somebody from ancient Rome or Greece who would bow before a statue. It's anybody who would put desire in the place of God in their life as ultimate, as the driver for why they do what they do. Covetousness is a great example because to covet isn't just to want something, like greed, that's why greed isn't as good of a translation. To covet isn't just to want something, it's to want something that somebody else has. Does that make sense? So to covet isn't just to think, oh, Gerald's wearing nice raw denim. That's nice, I want a pair. To covet is to say, I want his pair. I don't, that's a little creepy actually. I have a thing with used clothes because I'm OCD. So um, I know they're good for the environment, and very, I'm sure Jesus would not buy new, but I just am still in process, okay? My point is, it's not to you know, want a house, it's to want your neighbor's house. And here's the key, listen, it's to be willing to do them harm for your own good. An idolater is somebody who is willing to do wrong to get what they want. And while most of us would not steal our neighbor's house or Gerald's jeans, we'd easily have our spouse clean the kitchen while we sit on the couch and watch TV, or make a sarcastic joke at somebody else's expense, or ignore our children when we're tired because we'd rather pursue our hobby or read a novel or whatever it is for you, or sleep in and go to brunch rather than go to church. This aspect is in all of us. And the key point here for Paul is your old self is that idolater who put your desires, in particular your disordered desires, at the ultimate place in your life. That is what you lived for, was to get your desires sated. For Paul, that old self, those old desires that was un, that is what we are to die to, and the new self with Christ, full of love and free, is who we are to live into. Now, back to Matthew chapter 16. This is what Jesus means by deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And this call is at the core of discipleship. I'm telling you, 
I've been following Jesus for 30 years over that. I still feel like a beginner. And I feel like just in the last few years, as I near 40, as I've been through some rough things now, I feel like I'm just starting to get what the whole thing is all about. And I feel like I'm just starting to get this line that I've read as long as I can remember, that self-denial, that the cross is at the center of everything. That what it, everything about apprenticeship to Jesus in the end comes down to this one key idea, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is why Jesus said it over and over. You could argue this is Jesus' most repeated teachings. It's in all four gospels, which is very rare. It's seven times in the four gospels. And notice the word must, you must, you must, you must, you have to, this is just how it is. Take up your cross, follow me. Come to this place where you say, God, wherever you say to go, I'll go. Whatever you say to do, I'll do. Whenever you say to do it or go, I will, I'm yours. You know, we all look back at the Crusades as this low point of history of the West and the church, and there's, it's mostly bad information that the actual history behind it is quite different than in the popular imagination. But there's a legend, I don't know if it's true or not, but I love the idea that the Knights Templar were baptized before a crusade in full armor, but as they went under the water, they would hold their sword up over the water as if to say, Jesus, you can have all of me, but not this part. And that's easy to laugh at or to mock or to lambast, but the reality is we all do this, right? Jesus, I don't know what you would hold up. Most likely you don't have a broadsword, unless if you're like really into Braveheart and like that thing, you know? Um, but what it, I don't know what you would hold up. A wallet, a habit, a relationship, a theology, an identity, a career, a shopping habit. I have no idea, but to take up your cross is to go all the way under the water in baptism to death and resurrection to new life. It's just to say, Jesus, I let go of all of it. Here I am in yours in faith that on the other side of death is resurrection. And on the other side of the cross is an empty tomb. Now, if this sounds like a tough sell and you're thinking, why in the world would I do that? Jesus, I love Jesus. He's brilliant. And like a really, like a master teacher, he anticipates our questions before we even ask them. And he goes on to answer it for you. Back to Matthew. Take a look at the next line, verse 25. For, for, and that's a, in Greek, the idea here is, here's why you should do this. Here's the reason, the motivation. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, that word soul there is um, in in my translation, or I'm sorry, life, is psuche in Greek, where we get the word psychology, and it can also be translated soul. So the idea here is your soul or your life, or really your soul life is how some scholars translate it. And notice the word, the key word in this right here, if just if you underline in your Bible, underline this, is the word will. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Notice not should, not ought, not this is what you should really think and pray about, just will, statement of fact. One of my favorite things about Jesus' teaching style 
is how often his teachings do not end with a command. Sometimes they do, but more often than not, with a statement about reality, about how life actually works. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. It is better to give than to receive. The last will be first, the first will be last. Notice, none of those are commands, not a one. They are statements. They're just wisdom statements about reality. This is how life actually works. And you have to read this part. Whoever will save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. You have to read this, not as a command, not as an ought to, not as a really you should do this. You have to read this as a statement about reality. For Jesus, and I know we're into like the non-binary option C kind of thing, and there's a place for that. But for Jesus, he's actually a very black and white teacher most of the time, just to drive it in. For Jesus, you have two options. Deny Jesus and follow yourself, or deny yourself and follow Jesus. The results, losing your life or saving it. Let's parse out how that actually works. When we deny Jesus and follow ourselves, or put it another way, when we put our desire as ultimate in our life, it is the king on the throne of our heart, and we make getting what we want, that is the authority in our life, and that is the motivation for all we do. If and when we opt for that path, or Jesus would say way, four things will happen to our soul or our life. First, we will, and just give me a little time to work through this. First, we will be unsatisfied. We'll talk more about this next month in our practice on Sabbath, which I can't wait for. But desire is by nature, human desire, infinite. It cannot be satisfied. The nature of the human soul is it was built by God and for God and for eternity itself. And so nothing less than life with God forever and Everything in it will satisfy your soul. As Augustine put it, our hearts are restless until they find what? Rest in thee, one of the most famous sayings of the way of Jesus over the last two millennia. What this means is very simple, and we hear this all the time to the fact it's become cliche, and I think we don't realize the gravity of it, is that nothing under other than our continual connection to life with God will ever satisfy us. No matter what it is that we want, whether it's good or evil or in between, we will never be able to get enough of it. We will never come to the spot where we say, oh, I have enough of whatever it is. Just run this through the grid of the secular pantheon of money, sex, and power. Money. How many of you would like more money? Is this a safe place? I would, for sure. How many of you think you'd be at least a little bit happier with a little bit more money? You would be. That's just some bad theology for you right there. Um, no matter how much money I make, I always want more. What's the Rockefeller line? If you don't know, oil tycoon at the time, the richest man in history, was asked by a journalist once how much money is enough, and his iconic answer was what? Just a little bit more. Oh, man, no matter how much money you make, you will always want just a little bit more. Sex, this is even more true of which the many mutations of it reveal, and Tinder just preys on. And I say prey on purpose. It is a predator. Tinder and so many of its like are leftist ethics with right-wing capitalism in bed together to seduce you and steal your money and with it your soul. 
Power, lots of talk about power with intersectionality theory and all the justice work. And what we often forget is there are so many different types and shades and variations of power. Power is the ability to control or to shape the world and our life in it to fit our desires. We all want more power. We all want more control to make our life the way we want it. My point is, whatever it is, money, sex, power, or just go on down the list, as, listen carefully. As long as our method of dealing with desire is trying to get what we want, we will always be unsatisfied. You know this to be true, because the second you get a thing, or the promotion, or the wife, or the child, or the house, or the job, or the new city, or the youth, whatever it is, thing or non-thing, the second you get it, what happens? The horizon of possibility opens up and you see three more things that you want now that you weren't even thinking about before. Christmas, this always happens to me. Like I'm all into minimalism, so I really work hard not to shop. And sometimes like I have a brother-in-law who's a fashion designer. And so at Christmas, often I'll get like a new shirt or a new pair of shoes or whatever from them. And then I'll think, oh, this is great. But actually, I need a new pair of jeans to go with the shirt. And then you get the shirt. You're like, actually, but my shoes don't really work quite right with this. And all of a sudden, I have this. And then you go, and then like, oh, my belt is kind of really old. It's like seven years old now. I There's a nice belt. Oh, but it's a brown belt. And my watch is black. So really, I need a new watch, too. And next thing you know, it's like, I was perfectly happy. And then Steve gave me a T-shirt. And now I want a whole new wardrobe. (laughs) Right? And that's just the way. Is that just me? Am I just the only greedy person in the house? Uh, Okay, I am. Okay, thank you for that. My point is, this is just a law of the human condition, the way life is, and it is one that the devil uses to entrap scores of people in a lifeline game of carrot and stick. If advertising is smart enough to figure this out, you can bet that the powers and principalities are. On the flip side, if you deny yourself and follow Jesus, you will be satisfied. Ironically, when you no longer need to get what you want to become happy, all that is good in your life, and all of us have some measure of good, it all becomes a gift, not a right, which in turn dramatically increases your capacity to enjoy the life that you have, not the one you want, the one in the present, not the one in the future, and to be happy. Like we're happy when ordinary life is enough. Happiness is a synonym for contentment. When your apartment, your relationship status, your character status, when ordinary life is enough, we get to that place not by enthroning desire, but dethroning desire and finding our satisfaction not in getting what we want, but in continual connection to Jesus and into gratitude to his appointment over our life. Secondly, if we deny Jesus and follow ourselves, we end up disintegrated. Mark Sayers and I have this little podcast on culture, and before we record each season, we do them all kind of at once when he's in town, we sit outside Heart Coffee on 13th, and we map out the episodes. And last, I think it was last spring, we're sitting outside, and it was this gorgeous, like, Portland at its best day. And we're right on 13th. It's like one of the nicest parts of the city. And you're outside this Swedish, you know, kind of, I think the owner's finished or something, like this beautiful modern design. And we're drinking a flat white with, like, organic cashew almond. Like, this is just how rich people live. Let's be honest, all right? It's a wonderful life. And we're sitting there kind of gearing up, and we can't help but over here, we're outside, and right next to us are these three girls. And we're not even 
eavesdropping really, they were talking loud, I promise. And it was this Portlander with two Danish friends, and these three 20-something girls were just chatting, and at one point, they're chatting about politics, and at one point, the Portland girl yells, like yells, democracy is literally dying, as she's sipping her $7 flat white, you know? And Mark and I just started to chuckle. Like, the last few years in particular, even if you live in heaven on earth, even if you have the money to go out and enjoy a flat white or whatever it is, it feels like the world has gone mad and that it is spinning out of control. And in a sense, some of that's overblown, but in a sense it has. This is what happens when an entire society is estranged from God. The political and personal chaos that we are living through is what happens when the uncrucified and untethered self becomes the driver for a society or a soul. People get angry and anxious, which is exactly what happens when people don't get what they want. When desire is your king, his reign is one of anarchy. On the flip side, if we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, we end up integrated. Now, I, don't, I wish I had more time, but long story short, in biblical theology, your soul is the integration, that's the key word, of your whole person. So um, at, at the popular level, people think your soul is like this like invisible, immortal part of you. That's, that's not biblical theology. Biblical theology, your soul is just you. It's the whole you. So your body is actually a part of your soul, your mind, your emotions, the, the will, the centermost part of you, the, the spirit, the part of you where you are in connection to the spirit of God, visible, invisible, material, immaterial, all of you together integrated into a whole is your soul. And the dream, how you were created to live, is in harmony, all of you integrated into a harmonious center. But when our self is on the throne, it's at the center rather than God, we disintegrate. We start to come apart. We feel conflicted, torn, racked by tension, which is how most people feel. The solution is not out there, it's in here. It is to integrate. I need to be careful what I say here, but it's really popular right now to turn Jesus into a political activist or a social justice advocate. And there's just enough truth. That's not a bad idea. There's enough truth in that idea to get away with it. Jesus stands in a long line of Hebrew prophets who decry injustice in society. The problem is Jesus just, if you read the four Gospels, does not remotely resemble a political activist. His attitude toward the Roman Empire, which was brutal in its reign of terror, is, seems to be one of intentional indifference. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Give to God what is God's. That is as punk rock as it comes to both the right and the left. Nobody likes that. Nobody who even remotely cares about politics likes Jesus when he starts talking about politics. And that's because, and listen carefully, don't misread me, for Jesus, unless I'm missing something, the solution to the pain and suffering of the world is not to tweak the empire to his vision. That's why Jesus doesn't march to Rome and protest. Not because, listen, not because politics and policy don't matter, they do. Laws and legislation shape society, which in turn shapes souls, and in particular has an after effect on the poor. They matter a lot, and it's great to be involved in them. But we have to be honest. We're not humanists. We're followers of Jesus. At best, 
All politics can do is manage symptoms, not deal with the root cause. For Jesus, the root problem underneath it all is that the human soul in all of us is disintegrated, open in mind to the ideas of the devil and run by the flesh, not by the spirit. Therefore, the solution for Jesus is reintegration. That's why he goes around and one-on-one as a rabbi, as a teacher, talking about the soul, saying to people who are poor and hungry, blessed are you, yours is the kingdom of heaven, here's some food, and then he sends them away still hungry and food scarce, but blessed with access to the Father, with a reintegrated soul. All I'm saying is at a political or a personal level, and really my point here is the personal, as long as we attempt to gain peace in our inner world by rearranging the circumstances of our outer world, we are doomed to a non-peaceful life. We will just play a lifelong game of whack-a-mole. It's like that's one of the things you start to learn as you near 40 is whatever the solution is, it's not that. It's not just make Tammy the spouse exactly behave toward me exactly how I want it and get my house just right and get my children just right and just get everything out there right. So then, ah, how's that working for you guys? I spent a long time doing that and all I do is hurt other people and frustrate myself. For Jesus, my therapist is so, I love my therapist. He's like the anti-therapist. And whenever, it doesn't happen a lot, but whenever I come in and I say, oh, I'm doing pretty well, he'll say to me, oh, great, what do you think's going to go wrong next? He'll literally say that to me. It's amazing. And it's not because he's like nihilistic. It's because he's saying, like his message to me over and over is, listen, you can't, your happiness can't be dependent on a trouble-free life. Or at best, all you have is little fleeting moments of it. He said to me last time we were together last week, whatever human flourishing is, it has to be able to integrate a child born with Down syndrome or bankruptcy. I was just like, I'm out of a job. I don't even know what you're talking about. I know it's true, and I'm so far from that. It's like, wow. My point is when you deny yourself and you reintegrate your soul around God as your center, even when your outer world is a mess, even when your children are in trouble, even when your marriage isn't what you would like it to be, even when your career, even when you fill in the blank, even when your sexuality is a struggle, whatever it is, you have peace. Third, if we deny Jesus and follow ourselves, we end up run by desire. You know, desire in and of itself is not bad, unless if you buy the Buddha's take on it. But I would argue it's one of the main things that gets us out of bed in the morning. Desire is a great motivator, but it is a terrible master. When you have to do what you want to do, that's where the problem is. Willard said it this way, to live with uncrucified affections and desires is simply a matter of putting them in the ultimate position in our lives. Whatever we want becomes the most important thing. This is what happens when we are living apart from God. We make our desires ultimate because they are all we have. We look to them as if they were everything in our lives, thinking of my worth, my glory, my appearance, thinking of my power to sustain myself. And so we become people who are run by our desire. And again, done well, that's not all bad. The problem is we all know our desires are chaotic and contradictory and deceitful and sometimes lead us to life and sometimes lead us off the edge of a cliff. Whereas if we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, we end up instead motivated by love. 
Think back to Paul's teaching on the flesh that we went through on Galatians 5. For Paul, remember, the flesh is the antithesis of love. The flesh, all the flesh wants, all this disordered part of our heart wants is self-gratification. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it. Don't let anybody tell me different. What the spirit in you wants to do, what even your human spirit, your will in you wants deep down below that is to is love, is to will the good of another ahead of your own. For the apprentice of Jesus, the lifelong journey is to become the kind of person for whom every action is motivated by love. Not just loving, because sometimes we do loving things for selfish reasons, am I right? And if you want to know what your motivation is, just see what happens when people don't perform the way that you intended for them to perform through manipulation of your love, and then see, i.e., when your children, child doesn't say thank you because you took them out to ice cream, how could you? I loved you by doing this. No, you didn't. That wasn't love. Whatever the motivation was in that moment, Dad, it wasn't love, right? But the lifelong journey is to become the kind of person for whom every act is love and is motivated by love, to become a medium for the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Trinitarian dance of affection and delight to flow through your life and body to the world. In all of my close relationships, with my lovely wife down here, with my children, with my community and friends, I find that it is a daily fight between my flesh's desires just to do whatever the heck I want and the Spirit's desire in me that is deeper, that is the undercurrent of a river beneath the subterranean floor to will the good of another ahead of my own. And the older I get, the more I follow Jesus, the more I realize that to love is to deny my flesh, to take up my cross, and to say yes to that deep, undercurrent of driving motivation of love. Finally, if we deny Jesus and follow ourselves, we end up in slavery to want. We did work around this. In slavery, and forgive me if this is a bit of a review of our series, but it's slavery because you have to do what you want to do, even if it's not good for you or others. An easy example is, of course, substance abuse, but it's true of the socially acceptable addictions as well. Work, social media, health, fitness, porn. Choose your cultural narcotic of choice. And it's slavery because as long as your happiness, or in Jesus' language, your soul or your life is dependent on getting what you want, you will, again, rarely be happy because, as we said, most of our, or at least so many of our desires go unfulfilled. So your happiness is locked up in the prison of want and can't escape to the surface of your heart. On the flip side, option B is that we deny ourselves, we follow Jesus, and we end up free from the domination of want, liberated from dependence on getting what you want to be happy. Man, I just tell you, I am learning more about the human condition through parenting than I ever did through psychology class in college or grad school. My poor kids keep getting used as bad examples. They really are great kids, I promise you. I just tell you the bad things about them, okay? Um, there's lots of good things, I promise. But I watch this dynamic, particularly with our boys who share a room, and they're both at, like, prime Lego age, right? And so naturally, like, you know, they get Legos for Christmas or whatever. All the Legos end up in one pile, right? You know, in, in one box. It's more like 10 boxes now, but whatever, in a box. And so I watch this dynamic when they both want the same Lego, which this happens pretty much every day, and 
whoever doesn't get, like, like somebody is the winner and somebody's a loser, right? Even if you're like, well, you get it for an hour and then you get it for an hour or whatever. At the end of the day, whoever doesn't get it, it's like it's the end of the world. Like you parents know, like children will literally say like, okay, Moses is going to get the Kylo Ren plastic thing or whatever. My day is ruined. They will literally say that. Moses will just say, worst day of my life (laughs) over like Kylo Ren. And that is a silly little example of how, and one of the things I just love about children is they have not yet learned to manipulate and mask who they really are. Right? As we get older, we're often just as petulant. We're just really good at hiding it, right? And we learn to manipulate people in all sorts of other ways. Um, but I just love the honesty of children's sinfulness. It's just so refreshing. <laughs> and the reality is, like, their happiness is just rooted in getting what they want. And, of course, as we mature, hopefully we mature beyond that and, ironically, then become much, much happier. If we don't, we're just that same eight, nine, ten-year-old child who's mad because they don't get the Han Solo speeder bike or whatever, and that's just, and they're a wreck because of it. The people I know, and just run through your, like, mental Rolodex of people you know, in particular who are older and wiser to have been following Jesus. The people I know who are the most happy, most at peace, most grateful, who deeply enjoy their life, who are loving and kind and sacrificial, who, are, who just seem to live free from the rat race of consumptionism and social Darwinism and anger and anxiety, are simultaneously, when I think about it, the people I know who have most died to self. There is a deep, this is against everything you will hear on the street and everything that will come through your phone, but there is a deep happiness that comes on the person who has died to self. Not because they have gone quasi-Buddhist and detached from all desire, but because they have put their desires in the proper... But what, what I think Buddha was getting at that was spot on is your desires have to be subordinate to something else. They have put desire in their proper place below God. He has become ultimate. Or said another way, they have said yes to their deepest desire, which is for God. And in doing so, they have been set free from the domination, the tyranny, the enslavement of want. The end result, to recap, if you deny Jesus and follow yourself, you end up unsatisfied, disintegrated, torn conflict, run by desire, that's like the driver, and just in slavery to want. I have to get this, I have to get this, I have to. This is what Jesus means by you will lose your soul. How many of you have lived long enough to hear a friend or a family member, usually who's a bit older, but not always, hit a crisis and say something like, my life is over, or I have nothing left to live for after a divorce or a bankruptcy or whatever. I've lost it all. This is often the refrain that we hear when self is God. Bonhoeffer, um, if you know him, in his famous book before World War II on the cost of discipleship, he called the cost of discipleship. He coined that phrase, coined the phrase cheap grace, said it's misleading to talk about grace is free, like it will cost you to follow Jesus. But Willard and others have, who love Bonhoeffer have come back since then and said, yes, there is a cost to discipleship. We also have to factor in and calculate the cost of non-discipleship. 
You have to run a cost-benefit analysis. Are you willing to trade happiness for that quick pleasure? Contentment for yet another pair of pants. Intimacy for sex. Trust for an affair. The cumulative compound interest of blessing accrued over years of faithfulness just for the easy out of quitting when it's hard. Are you willing to trade the world for your soul? Just do the math, right? You will. Again, this is, not a, this is a statement of fact. This will happen to us if we follow ourselves. On the flip side, option B, if we deny ourselves and follow Jesus and run counter to pretty much all the messaging we hear, we end up satisfied, <sighs> integrated, the pain, the suffering, the external stuff that's a mess, we just we find a way to live with it in peace, motivated by love to will the good of another and free from the domination of want because we have God and everything else is bonus. How does that sound? <laughs> this is what Jesus means by you will save your soul. And for Jesus, it all starts with the cross. For him, you want to follow me? You want to apprentice under me? You want to experience life in the kingdom? Wonderful. Welcome, everybody. Crosses are over there. Um, one's assigned to you. It has your name on it. And um, if you would like to, I'm en route this way. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For again, for Jesus, entry point into his kingdom life is not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your social status your income, your education, your IQ. It's not even based on your character. It's based on a very simple question. Are you willing to take up your cross? Are you willing to live into this pattern? Again, Bonhoeffer in that book opened it by saying, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Meaning this is step one, come and die. This is step one on the path to resurrection life. And this is what we often miss. Um, we think of that line, Paul's declaration. We read it from Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. The stunning word there is with. We err if we think that Jesus was crucified so that we don't have to be. He did not die so that we don't have to die, but to show us how to do it well. And in doing so, how to come back from the grave Put another way, and this might sound heterodox to you. It's not. This is straight up Paul, Galatians 2. The cross isn't just something Jesus did for us. It is. It's also something we do with him. It is not just a theory of atonement. It is. It is a practice. It is not just an event from the past in the life of Jesus. It is. We give a special place to it. It is also a way of life in the present for me, and for you. So how do we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do we like go out to the streets of the city, bullhorn in hand, ready like our Jesus machete up, like just ready to? No, not at all. How do we fight as we move forward in this life? How do we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil? We come and we die. We have no practice for this teaching. But if you would like one, here's something that I have been doing recently, and I find it painfully effective. <laughs> However you do your quiet time in the morning or whenever, 
Um, I do this at the end normally of my time. I'll just take a moment, this takes 15 seconds, and just visualize Jesus on the cross. And then I will just visualize myself climbing up onto that cross with him. Or sometimes if there's a desire that I'm just sitting with, in particular one that is unfulfilled or one that I know is disordered, anger, lust, greed, I'll just visualize nailing that desire to the cross with Jesus. And then don't stop there, right? So sometimes the Catholic Church got wrong. Jesus is still on the cross. Like, remember, the cross is one half of a two-sided coin. The other half is resurrection. Then I will often visualize myself walking out of the grave on a bright, beautiful Palestinian summer morning, coming back into life. This is the pattern, the core of the universe. In John's version of this teaching, Jesus has this great line added, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. And in that one line, he's just tapping into the ubiquity of the universe. Our whole world is based around dying and rising. The four seasons, food, every meal you eat, something or someone had to die, a plant or an animal had to die for you to live. This is at the heart of this pattern of death, burial, and resurrection is in the fabric of creation itself. As H. H. Farmer once said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. You fight this, you, re, you deny Jesus, you fight this, you buck against it, you will get more than splinters. You will miss out on the way that God set up the universe and your soul in it to flourish and thrive. But if in faith you follow Jesus to the cross, and this is all about faith, Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, his most famous line, he defines sin as an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. You have to have faith in the love of your Father. What he wants for you is your deepest happiness and that the way to that ache that we all have, every human being, follower of Jesus or not, is through the cross and out the other side into resurrection. Let's stand together and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.